Mr. Mirza. Mr. George. What's going on? I mean, well, first of all, thank you for doing this. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, dude. I, I just learned that this is your first in-person podcast. Yes, I've done multiple podcasts virtually, but my first time in person, and it's much, much preferred and better, I think, as all things in life are in person. I'm, uh, I'm pumped to have you on. You know, you're, uh, for someone who's been in Chicago now two and a half years, you've become very quickly a, a close friend, peer, not just in the sort of tech ecosystem, but even outside. I always enjoy uh, our catch-ups, our talks. Mm-hmm. Sometimes our, our walk and talks. Our walk and talks. And our car drives, our carpools uh, <laughs> back home, yeah. Yes, carpooling. Karaoke, is that what we're going to do next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Karaoke and, uh, and carpooling. That, that makes sense. We'll do it together. A lot of folks uh, watching in from Chicago obviously know you as a serial entrepreneur. Uh, you now run Fifth Star, which we're going to get into in a little bit. But you're basically helping tap into the underrepresented founder tech ecosystem, mm-hmm. trying to give back. There's a lot of, of points to you. Yeah. Before we get into the entrepreneurial side of who Samir is, I thought we'd start from the upbringing perspective. Yeah. Someone who was born in the city of Chicago to two Indian immigrant parents. Interestingly enough, a father who's Muslim, yes. a mother who's Christian. Yeah. How was, what was it like in, in, in a household like that, growing up with two different religious backgrounds, yeah. but also cultures, ideologies? Totally. Yeah, I love starting with that. Um, and I think it's something that I only started to appreciate later in my life. Um, so yeah, so as you said, both my parents are Indian immigrants. My mom came here in the 70s. My dad came here in the early 80s. And um, yeah, so my father is Muslim, comes from Rajasthan, North India. My mom uh, is Christian, comes from the South. And so actually when I was growing up, actually funnily, actually I grew up with both religions. So I'd actually go to the mosque with my dad. Uh, I'd actually go to, to a church with my mom as well. And then it was only until uh, when I was like seven years old, actually, that I was baptized. My mom is a little bit more, I would say maybe perhaps more religious than my, my dad. And um, so yeah, kind of then went down uh, that path. But um, yeah, I think for me, the different religions, the customs, the cultures, I think from a very young age, I was always open to um, different philosophies. Um, my parents taught me, I think, to accept people from different cultures and backgrounds. And yeah, and also, yeah, I grew up in, in the city. And I think people from Chicago, when they grew up in the city, they like to say, yeah, I grew up in the city, not the suburbs. But I'm kind of half and half. So I, was, I grew up right off of Devon Avenue in Little India area on the north side. Uh, super diverse. Um, and then actually, then when I was 10 years old, my family then moved to the suburbs on the northwest side. Um, and I think it was a big change for me because I went then to a predominantly white um, uh, school. I was the only brown kid in there. I, can, I think it kind of threw me off a little bit mentally. Uh, uh, but then, yeah, eventually then later went to U of I, which was much more diverse. And I was able to kind of get back into uh, that feeling of diversity. But, yeah, I think that feeling of openness and acceptance was, was core to my upbringing. And uh, I credit my parents a lot uh, for that as well. You mentioned your – so your mom is, is the maybe the more religious one yeah. uh, out of both of your parents. Would you say there – was there a sort of a, a religious – um, attachment that you had growing up? Like, would you yeah. consider yourself today someone who is religious? Ooh, that's a good question, George. Um, I gave you the questions, but there are some surprises. Yeah, yeah, that's a surprise one. Wow, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that's a good question. So I would say growing up, definitely, it was a, a part of my upbringing and even to my early 20s uh, as well. Uh, but actually, I would say, I don't know, like once I um, started my startup, I think a part of that kind of faded away um, a bit. And I think I kind of lost that foundation. Um, I think just purely from the time spent building a business, um, but it's interesting because now I think it's something I'm thinking a little bit more about. And I know yeah, we can talk more about mental health or like what do people fall back on when, when things are tough, whether it's building a business or, or, or anything else that one is building. Um, so, yeah, I would say it was core before, but now it's kind of maybe questionable. I'm, I'm, I'm figuring it out, I would say. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, it's, it's inter- and I know we're going to get into the sort of segue both as a, you know, I guess as an adult trying to figure out life, yeah. you know, and then when you become a founder, your whole life is so yeah. encapsulated by this thing that you're building. Totally. Your identity becomes that, right? How, and how do you fill up other things in your identity as well? 
And speaking of identity, actually, one thing I wanted to ask you, you mentioned you're the only, uh, so you went to basically an all-white school, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, in my yeah, middle school, teenage, uh, in high school years, yeah. So how, I mean, it's, it's interesting because you were also born in Chicago. Yeah. You know, so you probably, probably have that American DNA as well. Yeah. Even though you, you come from diverse backgrounds. Yeah. Internally, did you feel different? Um, yeah, from like my peers, uh, like the yeah. people that are around me. That's a good question. I I feel like I did, and there was also I would feel like an impetus to try to fit in, and very subconsciously, and I think that manifested it. I remember trying to part my hair in a certain way to like match my white peers. We all had those bowl cuts, I think, back in the day. Um, but I remember, yeah, putting highlights in, but then my hair would just kind of turn orange, and um, I don't think I realized why I was doing it until years later. And I think it was this um, desire to uh, to fit in. Um, but then I think it also I also realized too the the silos we can all grow up in, especially here in Chicago. Um, I, mean, I love Chicago and the city, but so many pockets are segregated, right? And it's easy to have very different kinds of experiences. And yeah, and I, I, I can't fault my parents. Cause I think they just wanted the best uh, for my sister and myself. But um, yeah, I think they weren't thinking about diversity when they moved us to the suburbs, right? They just wanted a strong education and an ability for us to move up the ladder. And but yeah, but I think then luckily I was able to come back into it later in my life. Um, but yeah, there was definitely an effect. Uh, I wonder, yeah, I wonder if I'm still grappling. But I think I've kind of more or less, yeah, celebrated my background. And I think also with my peers, some of them not being as close to their cultural roots because perhaps their families immigrated generations before. But for me, I think it was something maybe sometimes my, I saw my friends admiring it because it was something I could hold on to and, and celebrate uh, for myself. Well, it's something you also can bring to the table. Yeah. You know, like in terms of whether it's the food, it's the music, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the dancing, it's yeah. something different. Totally. It's all cool now, right? And it's all even part of American culture as well. But yeah. It, it's this notion of embracing differences because yeah. you learn something new. Yeah, it's exciting. You know, totally. if we all sort of blend with each other and we all look the same and we dress the same and we, yeah. we speak the same. It's a bit of a boring world. Exactly. Yeah. Also, I, I also want to shout out to just more representation that's happening now. Um, so my wife and I, we love Miss Marvel, uh, the show that happened recently, seeing like uh, India's partition portrayed and just seeing a Muslim American family just portrayed as a normal family. I think growing up, all I had was like Apu on The Simpsons, and even then, like Apu has some good qualities, I suppose. But um, I think, yeah, I think so. I think all those things are are much better now. I mean, there's still a lot, long ways to go, but that for me is it's been. I almost get teary eyed anytime I see kind of Indian people on on t on TV or people that look like me. Yeah, well, even if you look at what happened with Encanto, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that that was an amazing uh, sort of sequel that they put together. Uh, Kim's Convenience, I think, if I'm not totally. mistaken, right? Yeah, on yeah. Netflix, there is more representation. And, um, Interestingly enough, you were, you were talking about fitting in. I was just laughing because it reminded me, in high school, yeah. you know, we just came from the Middle East and Fat Farms was massive back then, when I was yeah. in high school, at least. You, yeah. you remember the brand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I tried to, like, I would wear these really baggy shirts with, like, a massive, <laughs> yeah, I'd wear their shoes. I would love to see pictures of that. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> this is, like, G-Unit with that massive, like, Walkman. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just trying to find my way. I barely could speak English. I had a mushroom cut. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it wasn't pleasant. That's funny. <laughs> so the picture of this podcast will be old uh, middle school pictures of, of us, to, and I think they'll attract the viewership. Viral. Yeah, viral, yeah, yeah. It's going to be our viral moment. <laughs> Did, uh, did your parents have an influence at all in terms of um, how you sort of started formulating what entrepreneurship could look like? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so my father, uh, he actually comes from the finance world, and he's actually the least tech-savvy person you'll ever meet. He still calls me to figure out how to attach uh, files to emails. I still have to help him with that, which is funny. Uh, but he was um, in the finance world, and he started his own financial firm. And um, I remember actually the first few years, um, yeah, the, the obstacles he was going through in the early 90s. I was still um, around like eight, nine years old. Uh, my mom was a nurse, and she supported us during that time. We lived in a small apartment here in Chicago. And so, I, yeah, I saw his struggle. I saw his passion for it. And then 
eventually he, his business started to do well, and that kind of then led to us eventually going to the suburbs uh, later in, um, in my teenage years. But yeah, I think he kind of put that bug in me. But I always felt like I would have to be smarter and older. I, I mean, my dad was older. He was like in his um, mid to late 40s when he started um, his company. Um, so yeah, I, I wasn't anticipating my entrepreneurial track happening in the way it did because I was very young when I started my startup. But it always ha- I always had a forward pointer that I wanted to do that eventually and kind of be in control of my path. Um, I remember also my dad uh, buying our first computer, an old Compact 46, and uh, I think it was mostly still me helping him try to figure out how to work it and stuff, but I think that also had impact as well to go down the, the, the technical path uh, for me. If, you're, if your dad didn't end up, was it like a finance business, by the way? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, now he's in uh, real estate before. It was like kind of financial lending um, for yeah, different companies as well. That's really cool. Yeah. Do you think if he, he hadn't done that, mm. but knowing that they immigrated, you know, like yeah. this is what I always, like my parents weren't, yeah quote-unquote entrepreneurs yeah but the mere fact that they immigrated alone to me was like entrepreneurship yeah. you know the, the the categories of like risk-taking totally. with kids yeah. yeah when you go to a country you barely can speak the language yeah was that also an influence aside from the business i think so yeah i think they're just adventurous uh risk-taking um vibe um yeah i think their, their desire to always push on me to keep growing don't take things for granted keep building I, yeah, I sometimes wonder, like, if, if I didn't have that on me, would I have gone down this path? It, it's, it's hard to know, but I think definitely just being immigrants and taking that risk, right, and uh, and fighting uh, to build a life for yourself, I think is very much manifested in entrepreneurship, too. Was there room to be creative? Because I feel like, and I asked this, <laughs> you're yeah. laughing. These are good questions. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You already know where I'm going with this, but yeah. uh, it's. I feel like in the, in the creative realm, yeah. which is very close to entrepreneurship, yeah. sometimes with immigrant parents, yeah. it's not as, um, there isn't a, there isn't as much room for acceptance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's very linear. Engineer, yes. doctor, yeah. lawyer, yeah. everybody watching yeah. this yeah. can attest. Mm-hmm. And then when you start doing maybe a podcast or computer side, but you want to do something, maybe build an app, yeah. did you face that resistance? Yeah, that's really interesting. Because, yeah, like, I, um, so I'm actually, I'm married to a dance artist, my wife, Anjul. But um, it's interesting comparing like, her upbringing a little bit to, to mine. But, yeah, I think, like, in the least of creativity for, like, the arts, I feel like that wasn't as much stressed uh, for me. Um, but uh, but I, I, and I do remember, actually, maybe the first fight I had with my dad was when I told him I wanted to do computer science as my major, major and I didn't want to be a doctor. And uh, <laughs> which is so funny, right? It's not even, like, a non-traditional path to want to be an engineer. But I know my dad had a very specific... Um, desire in his mind for me to actually go to like the seven-year program in Northwestern, be a doctor, have that kind of linear path, um, which is interesting because he is an entrepreneur himself. And so, um, but I, I think after we got through that bump, I think um, I think my parents became more accepting. But yeah, but I, it's interesting because I don't think there was maybe perhaps as much value on the creativity side. It was more, um, yeah, taking care of oneself, going going up the ladder, and then being able to build a family and uh, and not have to worry per se. I would say about money, um, but. Yeah, so yeah, but I guess in a way it worked out, but um, yeah, but I think my parents did give me that foundation to then launch to uh, to pursue my pursuits. Yeah, and, and so I think so much of it too comes from a defense mechanism. Like yeah. I don't think they're, you know, I'm sure especially now your dad probably looking back, especially yeah. with what's happening in tech, Yeah. you know, yeah. If, if there's a successful, you know, milestone, yeah. I think they, they start connecting the dots. Yeah. But back then it's like, what's the most stable thing you can yes. rely on and build a foundation on? Yeah. Because we never have want to go back to, Yes. something that's not stable mm-hmm. you know it's like we were already like on shaky ground yeah it took so much to even build a base for our house right please don't fuck this up <laughs> <laughs> well we like to swear on the podcast <laughs> no but I, I think that's really spot on because i think that's one thing i learned with my parents too is they just had a desire for myself and my sister to not suffer right um 
in whatever way that may be. But I think in, in challenges and suffering, there's so much growth that could be had, right? So I know for them, they just wanted us to be taken care of and, and, and uh, not so. But like, I think what they perhaps missed was, yeah, the growth that comes from having challenges and, and obstacles in, in your way. Um, but yeah, I, I think, yeah, it, it's so funny, right? Because they go through all that and then they, they don't want maybe the same for that, their ne- that next generation that they cultivate. Yeah, well, and I think to some degree, like we all have desires, right? And I, I don't know if some of them are always internal. Like I know for you, you did computer side. Yeah. Was the decision to do an MBA, especially at a top tier school, was that yeah. like a, a, something you just wanted to fulfill personally? Was it still like that I'm holding on to? I didn't yeah. go to NY, you know, I, I, I didn't do medicine maybe. Yeah. Or was it really like strategically to help pair with a computer side technical background? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think my dad actually, I would say, was a factor there in terms of um, like he had gotten his MBA, and, and I think he wanted that for for me as well. So I always had had that kind of pushing in my ear, and I don't know if I, maybe I would have pursued it if not. Um, but I think I think in so I started my career as a software engineer consultant here in Chicago, and I thought that paired um, with with my experience would offer some kind of value. But it was interesting because initially I was thinking I'd go into finance, uh, maybe hedge funds, uh, but like a week into business school, I realized that that wasn't for me, and that's not what I wanted. Um, but my, my perspective is very much different now, and I think a lot has changed where um, even like undergrad college, I don't know actually if it's as valuable. It's if you want to build a company or go into, into software engineering, I'm very much a fan of alternative career models. But I think back then, I think there were like these, these specific paths that, that were there. Um, so, yeah. So I, I, think, I think I had an idea, but it, it, I could not have expected how it ended. I wasn't expecting to start a startup in, in NYU, which is, which is what ended up happening, but that wasn't my initial, initial plan. You, you literally zero? Literally, like you zero. went in, yeah. no idea to do this. No, yeah, I thought I was going to, yeah, go into, uh, yeah, major in finance, uh, perhaps maybe work at a yeah, bank or hedge fund um, or something intersected, finance and tech, maybe go into VC later on um, if, if I was able to break into it. Uh, but yeah, and, yeah, and I was not, I was not looking to, to start a I, Again, I thought I had to be smarter, more mature. Like, I, I was a good engineer, but I thought I had to, had to do a lot more before I could actually build something of my own. Mm. That's very interesting. Yeah, you, you keep bringing that up because... I think even growing up, there's always this mystery, right? Especially yeah. when you look at your dads and you, you see, you know, they, they're, hopefully, if, if that is the case, they're accomplished, they're well put, and you're like, it seems almost so out of reach. Yeah. You're like, how do I even get there? Especially as someone who's like immigrated. Yeah. You're like, I have to do so much yeah. to yeah. even, but I feel like as yeah. soon as you go from like maybe your mid 20s to, to 30s, at least for me, like my understanding for my parents grew exponentially. Mm. I, it finally clicked. Yeah, I'm like, oh my, like, this is, now I understand how you feel. And I'm going through different challenges. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine what, what you must have gone through. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so going into that MBA passage, I think for you, the entrepreneurship side was yeah. because you met your co-founder. Yes, yeah. Correct? Yeah. Is that the tipping point? It was exactly, yeah. It was like literally our first week of uh, business school. It was like during orientation. And I remember... Um, like, yeah, there was like a social event. And um, so I met my, who became my founder, Brian Long. And so he was kind of on the hunt for finding like a technical co-founder, I remember. And so um, so I think he heard through a mutual person that I, I had a software engineering background. And so he came, introduced himself to me. And I remember we, then, yeah, he told me about an initial idea he had. And I was like, oh, I think I can maybe build that. And then we, we left that. We went to a meeting room uh, at NYU. And then uh, he showed me his deck. And I was like, okay, let me try to build this maybe over the weekend. And then that's how we just started working together. It was very serendipitous. And um, yeah, and then that became kind of the start of multiple pivots before what eventually became uh, Tap Commerce. Uh, and yeah, I think initially I, I was thinking, yeah, I had two years of business school. Let me just try different things. I could still do recruiting. I could try maybe just like building this and like see what happens. So I think I was very much open um, and I wasn't tied to any one path. Um, but that's how, I, that's how I met Brian initially. And this is two years in. 
Oh, sorry, this is the very beginning of, oh, the beginning yeah, of this is the beginning, yeah, yeah. So at the beginning, I felt like, okay, I have two years ahead of me and I can like experiment, test, try different things. How'd you guys first meet? Like, I know it's, so yeah. he was on the hunt, but like, what yeah. was, was it a coffee? Was it a lunch? No, yeah, yeah. So it was just like, um, um, yeah, during the orientation period. And uh, so those first couple weeks were a lot of events, kind of like, a lot of happy hours. And I think it was, yeah, maybe, I forget what, it was probably perhaps like a happy hour. Um, and then, yeah, I think we were at like a food table. And then I, uh, I think he heard from someone that I was a software engineer. So he came up, introduced himself. And uh, yeah, and then that, that's that's how we met and started. Did he have the idea for it to have commerce initially? No, yeah, it was a very, very different uh, idea. It was kind of actually still in the ad tech space. The idea was building a sponsored comments platform. So think of like articles that exist on the internet uh, with like comments under it. You might heard of like Discus as like a commenting platform. So what if we could monetize the space above the comments where maybe brands could respond to content about them like um, and engage in the dialogue there? Um, that was the initial idea, but then um, yeah, we had a lot of pivots from that. But then, so this is around 2010. And so the iPhone had been out for a few years. The uh, App Store uh, had just launched maybe a year or two before. Um, and so we then just started to have a thesis that the next big tech companies were going to be built on mobile. Um, so why not uh, try our hand there? And then uh, that's when we kind of pivoted. Um, but it was, it was very, uh, yeah, it was very interesting. So then when we decided to then kind of pivot into mobile, Basically, what I would do was um, I'd build a new app every week, a really silly, clunky MVP app. We would, we would research what categories were doing really well in the App Store, and we would think, okay, let's just build an app in that category, get it out there, um, see what users were doing, uh, and instrument the apps to get data. And then for the apps that were doing well, uh, we can iterate on those and keep building. Um, yeah, so that's how we kind of started. And also, like the, the lean startup uh, methodology was kind of coming into the vernacular. That was very close and uh, to our hearts, and so we were never uh, solution focused. We were always problem focused, and uh, about getting data, experimenting, and then iterating, and then letting that guide our path. So at the beginning, yeah, we weren't we uh, we weren't sure what we were going to build, and then actually, Tap Commerce ended up being very different from uh, our initial mobile app ideas. Was was the idea behind putting out apps every week, yeah. or kind of just ideating, but also ideating by trying, yeah, and then figuring out problem sets, I guess, based on user feedback. Yes, yes. Was that was that strategically designed to get you to the idea of fourth tab commerce or one like it? Yes, I think it was like strategically designed to figure out what could work because yeah, it's so crazy, right? Because mobile is so huge now, but back then it was the wild west and people didn't know how things were gonna turn out. People didn't even know like, what do you actually put credit cards in? So we actually, we built like an e-commerce app uh, where um, we'd allow people to buy things. And then on the back end, what we'd do is we'd just buy it from Amazon, re repackage it and then just send it. Not scalable at all, but we want to understand like, what was the behavior that people engaged with on mobile and what could actually happen and what did people feel comfortable with. Um, I remember like, yeah, so at that point, like we, uh, we saw religious apps were doing well and it's funny to talk about religion again, but none of it, we weren't religious at, uh, at that point, but like we saw those kind of apps were doing well. So I made like a Bible app just to put it out there. And then, and I remember we were thinking, oh, how can we monetize the Bible? What can we like put in there and stuff? But then we built like utility apps. Very sacrilegious of you. Very sacrilegious, yeah, yeah. But the apps I built that did really well were these coupon apps. So we were actually able to get millions of downloads for our coupon apps and, oh, nice. um, and then, then what happened was, okay, so we had these apps, we had millions of downloads, but we saw our daily retention rate was low, meaning like the number of daily active users was declining. So our thought was, okay, how can we solve this problem? Oh, let's show them retargeted ads to try to get them to come back to our app. Uh, but no one is doing mobile ad retargeting at that point because uh, third-party cookies are blocked by default on mobile. So our thought was, oh, could we actually try to build the first mobile ad retargeting platform without the use of cookies? We figured out a way to do that. And then that's when we pivoted to Tap Commerce to kind of solve our problem. But then we saw, okay, any brand can use our platform to do retargeted ads. And so that was then the, the final pivot and shift. Did, did you have, well, thank you for explaining. I, yeah. I feel like now we're getting to 
the aha moment almost. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. that moment when you realize like, okay, we have an idea because it's it's on us. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to box, I think, I hope I don't botch this example. No, but no, this yeah. was literally last night. Okay, yeah. I stumbled across, do you remember the movie with the actor from Breaking Bad? Yeah. Uh, it was a couple, basically, uh, an elderly couple. He stumbles across a way to uh, statistically beat the lottery system. Mm. Do you remember this movie? Oh, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. The, the, the whole point in the in, in the interview, and yeah. he, he made millions, I think probably four to six million. Or something. Okay, so it's a true story. It's a true story. Okay, yeah, yeah. And he was covered on like 60 Minutes or whatever. Yeah. And and his whole thing was my biggest surprise was not doing it because statistically, I was sure I was going to win. Yeah. You know, like a math savant. Yeah, yeah. He's like, what surprised me the most is nobody else knew that this was happening. Yeah. Or like, he's like, I was the only person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Out of <laughs> the entire country. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, what yeah. baffled me. Yeah. Uh, my point in bringing up this example, did you have that moment of realization? Like, hold on a second. Yeah. We just figured out that it's a pain point for us. Yeah. I think we see a massive potential. Yeah. Is nobody else catching on to this? Yeah. That's, that's, I love it. I love that question. I love that example of that movie. So I, we definitely thought about it because, so what was interesting for us was what we were seeing in mobile was, Everything that existed in the web was eventually going to perhaps exist in the mobile ecosystem in some shape or form. So that would eventually include um, ad platforms, right? So we saw Google doing ad retargeting. We saw other companies like Criteo doing ad retargeting on, on the web. Um, but they weren't yet doing it on mobile. And so I think what I started to learn was, I think everyone knew these things were going to happen, but it was all about execution. And I think when you're a small, nimble team, you can execute much faster than these behemoths. And so just because I think, I think ideas are a dime a dozen, I think it's all about execution. And so, um, yeah, so I, we, we did have a first mover advantage, um, but I think it's just because we were executing much faster than other people in the space. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's, uh, it's all about execution to me, I, I would say. What was the next, like, I always, I always wonder, like, as soon as you have that idea, how do you actually go from idea to formalizing a real business, yeah. getting maybe your, your first full time? Because that, that is a massive gap. Yeah. Every, everybody talks about the zero to a million in ARR or revenue. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm more interested in how do you go from concept to idea? Yeah. You execute a little bit, but yeah. then you actually have something where you're ready to move full time. Yeah. Was that a long process for you guys? Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. And this is where I think I, I think about privilege, right? And also, I think it impacts me in like Fifth Star later on, like in the sense that we had a lot of privilege. We, um, like, I. Like I, I had uh, like some savings. I also I knew if things didn't work out, I could always move back home with my parents. We also had the privilege of networks and network access. Um, so my co-founder Brian um, had worked at um, in a, in startups in in uh, New York, never as a founder, but um, but he had gotten to know the investors of those startups. So he had investors that were kind of in his network, and um, and for like the, our first hires, I had worked with like solid engineers in the past that I knew I could bring on to the team. And so I think we had kind of these things. Um, obviously, we would, we worked hard for it, but it, there was a lot of privilege in that network access that we had. And um, and then I think also we were able to bootstrap for several months. Uh, a lot of people are not able to do that. And even some of our early hires, um, like we, we, were, we gave equity, but they're also willing to bootstrap with us as well and, and take that risk. And I think because, yeah, of the, the privilege many people had in their backgrounds. Um, so I don't know. I bring it up because I think it's some, sometimes like uh, an undercurrent of sometimes startups that, that are able to build in early days because... Um, yeah, it is such a risk and you need that time to, to validate. Um, but I would say, yeah, once we, like once we had um, the millions of downloads of our, our apps in the init initial idea, we were able to like raise some funding for that. Um, but then eventually then when we pivoted and we, um, we talked to brands that, that we knew to see if we could do retargeting for them, we were able to close deals, we were able to show value, we were able then to kind of build that momentum and then raise more capital uh, after that as well. So yeah, but at that, at that day we were like, 
yeah, it was our first time still doing it. We didn't know what we were doing, right? And uh, I think you just have to do it. And if you're able to find people to take that risk with you, um, then yeah, then you just keep building. I don't think a lot of people are attentive to how privileged they could be or maybe yeah. are, yeah. you know, and uh, they test success to X, Y, Z or their hard yeah. work and, yeah. you know, grinding and hustling. But, yeah. you know, sometimes it's not always just that. Totally. And it, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, raise, was this your first time officially raising yes, outside yeah. money? Yes. Yeah. First time building company, first time raising funds. Yeah. As someone with uh, Indian DNA, yeah. was it daunting at first? To, to know that now you don't you not only have the responsibility of growing this company, yeah. employees, et cetera, and my personal sanity, yeah. but now you have this outside money who which you kind of feel responsible for. Yeah. And as in, you know, even myself as a Middle Easterner, yeah. our uh, our emotional connection to money is very different, I think, mm-hmm. to, to, to North American culture. Yeah. Was that ever a thing for you? Yeah, like once we raised capital, yeah. the effect of that. Yeah, and I think it wasn't just me. I mean, I think it was my, so, my, so Brian and my other co-founder, AJ, so they're two white males. Um, I think for, for all of us, like it's interesting. For like in my background as an Indian, um, but I, I think I think the three of us, we just wanted to scale as quickly as we could, mm-hmm. and I think one of the negative impacts of the raising of VC capital was was that pressure to scale, and I think part of it was imposed by us. And um, I think when I look back, one thing I would have done differently is so I think the culture we were building was growth at all costs. And um, so, yeah, I, I think we were almost running people into the ground. Um, I know myself and my co-founders, we were definitely working much longer hours than, than we should have. But I think there was a pressure. It was the first time doing it and and to get like a return for our investors. To prove yourself. To prove ourselves. Yeah. Um, but I do know, yeah, once we raised that capital, it yeah put a different um, spin on our culture. And that's one thing I when I talk to startups and I advise them, it's... Um, yeah, like when you raise funding, first of all, you have to understand how much you want to raise, but that always comes with expectations, right? And, and not all companies need to be uh, venture scale, right? Um, so, yeah, I think that definitely had an impact, especially when we raised VC funding. Is it hard to, to, to try to set that kind of culture? Like looking back, it's easy, right? It's easier, at least, at least because you can see where the gaps are, the faults are. In that moment, though, right, you're raising, you're sort of on this, you know, rocket yeah. growth and everything's happening, happening in real time. If you were to start a company now, do you think you would schedule more breaks to sort of take a step back and figure out where to implement the right solutions for those gaps? Yeah, like culturally? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, and I struggle with that. Even at Fifth Star right now, um, it's a different structure, which I know we'll talk more about. But um, I, I, it's funny because I advise startups about it, but it's very hard for me to do it personally. And I think it's because I still have a tendency to associate my work with my identity and, and want it to really shine and grow and, and, and have impact. Um, but I think, I think um, yeah, I think things you can do at the beginning of like defining like your cultural values, uh, being really intentional, even just having conversations about it. Um, like I, I don't think my, co- my co-founders and I ever really talked about culture or uh, any of those things when we were starting. Um, and I think another thing that we didn't do a good job of was uh, building diverse teams. Um, it was very homogenous. We were hiring people that look like us or from our networks. And so I think when you bring people with different backgrounds, different ideas, um, that also can complement a culture that you want to build. But I think, yeah, it just starts with conversations at the beginning and of like, what do you want, what do we want to build as a team and a culture beyond just our product? And if that conversation never happens, then it's very hard to retrofit it on later on um, when, you're, when you're growing. Yeah, because I feel like it's one of those things that kind of you push, you know, under the rug. Yeah, like, you don't, yeah. you think it doesn't really matter. Right, yeah. VCs aren't matter. looking at it, or your, your customers aren't looking at it. And nobody's it. asking you for it. You know, right. and your investors' news, like, no, but, I mean, to be frank, let's be all honest. Like, they're looking for the metrics and totally how's yeah. product growth? Where can we help? Yeah. Can we make an intro? Yeah. How's fundraising going? Right. You know, does, did anybody ask you about your 
No, I don't think so. Yeah, no, <laughs> and no one asked about yeah diversity metrics or any of that. That's changing a little bit. It's just um, probably different now. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's funny because. And then they almost that almost matters most, right? Because when you have a strong culture, that helps with retention. Uh, people are taking care of it. again, especially if it's a marathon, right? Um, in building a company, um, yeah. So that's one of the core aspects I think to build effectively. Um, yeah, and it's often overlooked. To your point, B- uh, before you exited uh, Tap Commerce, sure. I guess in a one line, like what what was the product eventually? Like at peak growth? Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. start there. What was it? Yeah, it's funny. Like I wish I could get a whiteboard to draw all the tech diagrams. <laughs> So it was pretty cool, actually. I mean, I think it's cool because I'm an engineer. But we actually built what became the uh, one of the largest mobile um, demand platforms. And so essentially what we're doing, I'll give you a use case. So like, so Groupon was one of our clients. So someone downloads the Groupon app, um, they do some stuff in it, and then they leave the Groupon app, um, and then they're in another app. But Groupon wants that user to come back. So say they're in another app and they see an ad. Before that ad gets shown to that user, it goes through a real-time auction. Um, and this happens within like 300 milliseconds. Um, And we were one of the bidders on that ad inventory. And so uh, if we showed that user a Groupon ad, then it would show up, they could click it, and then they go back to the Groupon app. So we were one of those bidders in, that, in the ecosystem. So at scale, our servers were getting uh, 700,000 ad requests per second. And each ad request represented some user somewhere in the world that we could show an ad to. And um, yeah, and pretty much um, most of the top brands um, across the industries like travel, e-commerce, gaming were our clients. And so we became one of the largest purchasers of uh, ad inventory in the mobile ecosystem. Um, at our peak, we actually had more um, traffic than Twitter, actually. So I remember when we were integrating with Twitter, we had to figure out how to like uh, balance all of that. Um, so well, that's the tagline, like by itself. <laughs> right, yeah, I guess that's one thing, yeah. But yeah, we were processing about 40 billion ad auctions a day um, yeah, for all, the, all these uh, top brands on mobile. So uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of work engineering-wise to build that because there's no tutorials. And um, that also taught me, too, what, what can be done with a small, scrappy team um, of just yeah, trial and error build, building. Luckily, AWS was growing at that time, so we were able to use them and scale. Uh, we had a massive infrastructure in the cloud. Um, so yeah, but it was a lot of late, late nights to, to build it. When you got to the point where you were, because I want to talk about imposter syndrome, yeah. but when you get to the point where you're, you're, you think you're ready to, to exit, was, was that the case? Like, did you get to a point where you're like, all right, I think we need to look at the next phase or did it naturally? Yeah, it kind of naturally and serendipitously happened. Um, I think uh, we also had a lot of momentum as well. So um, I, I think we were always open because we were always exploring partnerships with these different large companies to, sh- to b- uh, show ads on their platforms. And so... There was always kind of, that was always there, but I think it was very serendipitous, and um, yeah, timing worked out really well for it. Twitter approaches, or you approached? Yeah, so Twitter approached. Uh, yeah, so I, I could kind of tell the story of like that, the first kind of uh, what happened. So this was kind of in uh, 2013. We were still very early on in building, and we wanted to uh, meet with Twitter to see if we could show ads on Twitter's uh, app. More of a partnership. More of a partnership. Yeah, yeah. So myself and my two co-founders, we uh, fly out to San Francisco. We meet with them. Uh, it goes well, and at the end of the meeting, they say, um, actually, guys, we want to explore maybe um, acquiring you instead of partnering with you, so don't fly back to New York tomorrow. Um, we want to interview you guys uh, tomorrow, and we'll send you the, the info uh, tonight. And so obviously, we can't say no to that. Um, at that point, it w- would have been more of like, like an aqua hire because we were very early. Um, so anyway, we Twitter sends us like the information on who is going to meet with us. And um, so Brian and AJ, they have like, uh, it's like business product interviews, pretty easy. But for me, it's all technical interviews, which I hadn't done kind of uh, in, in a while. One of them is actually Parag, who's the CEO of Twitter, uh, who I, I worked with later on when I was at Twitter as well. So I remember my interview with him uh, very well. <laughs> so anyway, so the next day happens and um, I go in the interviews and they're like intense brain teaser 
um, really intense technical interviews, and um, and I hadn't done interviews like that in a while. wasn't prepared, and I um, basically felt like I bombed the interviews. Um, so in, the day ends, and then we could fly back to New York, and um, uh, a week later, Twitter gets back to us and says that we're not going to move forward. And one of the reasons is your CTO did not do well on his interview. And um, for me, I would say that was probably the lowest moment for me as an entrepreneur. I was constantly struggling with imposter syndrome. Even like, before that? Even before that, yes. Um, it was my first time building. And also, I think maybe something in my upbringing, I always felt like um, I always had something to prove. And Like you were never good enough? Never good enough, yeah. And I'm, maybe I'm, I'm packing that now in therapy. But, uh, and I talked to my parents. Bring it up, buddy. <laughs> well, I talked to my parents about it, too. Because, again, we're talking about parents, right? Like, yeah. my parents, like, I think, constantly compared me to my peers. And not in a way that was malicious, but they just wanted me to keep, keep um, growing and being the best, being the best. Right. They thought it would help maybe... Uh, make it more aspirational, totally, but yeah. it was maybe more damaging. Yeah, more damaging where I was always thinking about others, what are others thinking of me? Mm-hmm. So in my entrepreneurial journey, this is the first time that someone was telling me that I'm not good enough. And also not only that, but it was a moment where it could have, yeah, it could have been a life-changing event. I could have, we could have gotten acquired. It, this is everything that we were. You felt like you were the anchor of that milestone. Yes, exactly. And, and, and I had so much respect for my co-founders, uh, Brian and AJ. Um, yeah, and I felt like I was the reason. And did so, they respond at all? How, how, or how did they respond, I yeah, guess? And, and so that's what got me through it was I still remember, uh, um, whether it was Brian or AJ, but they, they said, like, yeah, fuck them. We're going we're gonna to go for it. Um, and so they, they just had so much faith in me and belief in me, and that's what got me through it. Um, and then, so, yeah, then after that, we, we scaled the company. We raised our Series A. Uh, we kept growing. Um, and then uh, a year or two later, then Twitter approaches us again saying, okay, we ran a bad process before you guys are growing. We want to actually do this in the right way. Um, and they gave us time to prepare. Um, so Before we get to, yeah. to, to the actual acquisition aspect, um, how did you bounce back? What were some of the things? Because it was your lowest yeah. point. Of course, your co-founders help. I'm sure your family was with you. Yeah. Uh, but what did you personally do? Was it listening to motivational tapes, yeah. walks? No, I, I think honestly, and it wasn't, because I think it, it, that that kind of stayed with me. Um, I think it was just going diving back into the work in, in a way. I, I didn't actually like take time off or like balance it with other things. Um, I was um, my, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, was a great support to me. Um, she was uh, still in Chicago, uh, but yeah, I, I think it was just diving into the work and then just seeing the impact of that we're growing and that I could like I was I was learning, I was getting better as a leader, and um, yeah. But I, I think it was always there, and I. Yeah, looking back, I probably could have done more to because I, I think that imposter syndrome still exists even in my day to day. But yeah, it was just diving back into the work and, and, and keep growing what we were building. I resonate a lot with that, to be honest with you. I mean, I struggle with I, I struggled with it a lot early in my career, yeah. um, especially I feel like when you have an ascension and you're you're younger, mm-hmm. um, you feel like there's there's more placed on you in terms of, you know, maybe performance anxiety or you need to. Yeah. You always need to do more, yeah. and I had to look older because I was on B- on the BD side and the sales side, and people wouldn't take me serious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. so th- there there are parts of it where I've felt that, yeah. um, and I think I resonate a lot with the reasons similar to you. Maybe it is in my upbringing, yeah. and I think immigrant parents because they they love you so much, they care so much about you, yeah. but more importantly, you're like their prized possession. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in possession, I don't mean it in a material sense. I mean, yeah. you're a byproduct. You yeah. know, and so when they see you succeed. That's that that's everything, yeah. you know. And then as a son, you look at your parents and how they look at you because yeah. you're at this pedestal. Totally. It fuels your fire again. Yeah. And I think also when you're when you're younger, you, it's it's easier to get more badges or awards, right? Whether it's grades or getting to school. But then as you get older, right, those badges are few and far between. So mm-hmm. if all of your validation of yourself is external, then yeah, then who who are you right now? Or who is your real identity if it's always resting on that? 
Right. It so, kind of tapers at some point. Yeah. Right. You know, and as you need, an adult. yeah, you need something yeah more substantial um, behind it that's more self-actualized. So yeah, it, it is a struggle. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I I wanted to share something really quickly actually about imposter syndrome. Uh, you you follow Adam Grant at all? Oh yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Professor. He's a yeah. professor at Wharton. Yeah. Uh, wrote a book called uh, Originals, I believe. Uh, but anyways, he posted about this, I think, yesterday on, on Instagram. Highly recommend uh, checking it out, too. But he said, basically, imposter syndrome uh, is usually, like, the voice in your mind is, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. It's only a matter of time until everybody finds out. Yeah, everybody finds out, yeah. Whereas the, you know, the, the better way to look at it is, I don't know what I'm doing yet. It's only a matter of time until I figure it out. Mm. So believing in your ability to learn is yeah. really the, the premise. Totally, exactly, yeah. Uh, Easier said than done, but yeah, easier said than done. But also using examples in your background, uh, in your past, knowing yeah, I got through stuff, right? I went through obstacles, and um, yeah, that helps me. I don't know if if you do this, but one hack that that's helped me. I have a a, a note on my phone, mm. um, and I've I've written everything that I've accomplished, yeah. personally, professionally. Yeah. In that note, though, it's like things like I've traveled to countries, I speak different languages, yeah. um, things I'm proud of, yeah. right? That I have a great relationship with my family, with my partner. Uh, that I have, I've made great friends and I'm in yeah. circles that I don't know if I would have expected to be in, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's something you can always point back to if there is a low, because yeah. it's going to happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Regardless of how confident you are, totally, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a muscle. You yeah. can't just expect to always be on a high. Right, exactly, yeah. That totally resonates. Um, and also even, I think, doing it on a weekly basis, right? I've started to do a little bit just like, yeah, things I re- really appreciated this week that went well, or what I did well this week, right? And, and just remembering those things and... Um, yeah, and I think also one thing I've been trying to do more is just like being present in the moment because I think a lot of anxiety is a focus on the future or the past. Yeah. But if you're just like fully present and aware in the moment, and like, yeah, it's another way to combat that as well. Struggling a lot. Uh, well, so uh, I think I'm finally um, coming to the to the good end of it now. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I think it's like an accumulation of things that you start being anxious about because to yeah. your point, it's everything coming up. Yeah. Oh, I have to be on stage or I have yeah, this massive yeah. speaking opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I have a really important meeting. And on top of that, there's a wedding coming up. And anyways, whatever that is for you, the biggest thing that's helped me is that. Mm-hmm. One thing, actually, one exercise, if you follow Mel Robbins, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen some of her content, yeah, uh, but she talks ab- about this. And one of her hacks is counting backwards from five, mm-hmm. mentally, just saying five, four, three, two, one. Mm-hmm. It sort of interrupts the, the, the part of the brain that's sort of in the abyss, yeah. thinking about what's next, yeah. worrying, stressing. Yeah, yeah. And you almost... Uh, take control of your your mind again you know and you're you're basically telling it like i'm in command Mm. so i'm here right now with samir i know there are things coming but to be frank all i have is this right now so right so i'm I'm trying to be as as much in it as i intentful listening you know trying to bring good energy uh because otherwise don't do it What's the point of being here if I'm not fi- if I'm not mentally here? Exactly. Yeah. I think another hack I've learned too is like when when these negative feelings come up, like like I am not those feelings, right? If I treat it as more an observer and like see that this feeling is happening and letting it pass through me, not trying to even fight it, but just like observing it and then letting it be. But I think when one ties their identity to that feeling, then I think it's it's challenging to to get over it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but again, it's always <laughs> easier said than done. Uh, these hacks, but the, but they're awesome. What's also easier said than done is actually exiting a, a company successfully. Yeah. Uh, thank you for the segue. Uh, <laughs> but so you guys exited, you ended up exiting TAP for $100 million. Mm-hmm. The acquisition to Twitter yeah. eventually becomes, this is really cool, by the way, because I don't know if most people maybe knew that it was unsuccessful at first and you got the personal sort of rut of it, yeah. which sucks, and yeah. you bounce back personally. Yeah. And then how, how did that feel? Was it like an FU moment, in, like a little bit on the inside? Not in a bad way, but an FU in the sense that 
to Samir Mirza, like, you did it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, it, yeah, it, it definitely had a little bit of that. Uh, I, I, I can paint the picture a little bit more. So, yeah, when Twitter approached us again later, like a couple years later, um, we, um, yeah, they were going to give us time to prepare. It was going to be more like, a, yeah, an actual real business acquisition. And so I, I knew in advance who was going to be in the room. And I, again, it was going to be really tech and product heavy. They wanted to know really str- that we had a really strong product. So I researched everyone that was going to be in the room. I knew the open source projects they contributed to. And um, my um, my co-founder makes fun of me. Like, but, but I remember, like, um, when we... I remember, I still remember vividly, like, the bathroom next to the meeting room at Twitter's office, going in there, and it was almost like 8 Mile. Do you ever see 8 Mile with Eminem? Like, Vomiting I'm, Yeah, I'm like, looking in the mirror, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, this is it. Like, I, was, I knew I was prepared now, but I'm like, this is it. Like, this is it. Like, I can't, I can't like, do a rap. Yeah. I know, exactly. Yeah, I go in and do the rap instead. Um, but then, yeah, I, I, do, I yeah, might have thrown up in the bathroom, and then, uh, and then yeah, then go, we go into the room. And then I almost like black out. Was this the presentation interview sort of? Yeah, this is the presentation. Yeah. So basically it was like a long meeting. So they had their biz dev folks, their heads of engineering, uh, all the main folks. You're selling them basically on making this happen. Yeah, it's making it happen. Yeah. So this must have been your biggest. I'm like sweating just thinking about it. No, yeah. It was. Yeah. So I I think when you talk about like that note you have, like I think about this moment a lot in terms of like a really big thing where my back was against the wall, but I I got through it. And um, yeah, so all the main Twitter folks were in that room. And uh, so the first part of the, the uh, meeting was just Brian talking about our um, business stuff, but that was easy. It was just like our revenue is up and growing and stuff. And then finally they wanted to really deep dive into our product and architecture. And so then I got up and I started whiteboarding and I, I feel like I almost blacked out because like I, it was just like so well rehearsed and I, and I knew the question. I just felt like I knew what they were going to ask me. And so even like, as they're asking me a question, I would interrupt them and I'd like, give them the answer and in a kind way. Uh, but like, uh, Shut up. yeah. But I, and then I remember, I remember um, at the end of it, like one of their heads of engineering was, he was like, he was like, oh, that was pretty good. Like, because have you guys done this before? Like, I was just like evaluation right away. There's drastic improvement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or like, um, and uh, yeah, and so we basically we just like I, I, we nailed the presentation. And I remember after that, we had rented a convertible um, to to go there, and like we just got in the convertible. Nice. We got in, and we didn't even say anything to each other. We just drove like on on the bridge, and we just knew we had nailed it. And um, that was one of yeah one of my happiest moments um, in 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 that whole journey, just being with Brian and AJ in that car afterwards. And That's such a like a, a movie scene, by the way. <laughs> yeah. You know, nobody's saying anything. It's like the sunset. Yeah. yeah. The like, the breeze is just like hitting your face, and you're just like, you know, whatever happens now. Yeah, but we knew we yeah we gave it our, our breath, and we and we did a good, great job. Please yeah. please tell me they called you while you were driving. <laughs> that, I think it was pretty soon I, after. Yeah. I the, would almost not believe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was way over the week after. Yeah. Hey guys, it, it's going through. <laughs> yeah, it's going through. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think we had to wait a little bit, but I think we knew it was going to work work out, and then. Yeah, I mean, there was then a bunch of other stuff too. Um, go, go, yeah, so like the legal diligence. But then one thing that happened was um, when they initially told us we were going to be acquired, they told us we could stay in New York uh, with our whole company. But then partway through the diligence, they felt like they really wanted product and engineering to relocate to San Francisco. Um, and I had no desire to move to the West Coast, but um, they said the deal would only go through if, if that happened. And so then suddenly I had to talk to the rest of my engineering team who didn't know we were about to be acquired. And I had to say, okay, we're about to be acquired, but it's only work out if you agree to move to San Francisco. And some of them had like uh, partners and spouses. Luckily everyone said yes. Uh, But then yeah, so like it was a a crazy year um, because then I also got married a couple months after that. But yeah, then that's how I then ended up in San Francisco because that was a kind of a requirement of the acquisition. Um, Yeah, so it was crazy, crazy times. How how long did the high last? You know, like by the time... I don't want to get into the financial details, but I'm just saying it was. Fr- I, I'm assuming it was it was fruitful to whatever extent or range. Yeah. Um, so there's a financial aspect, obviously. There's an emotional one. Yeah. Uh, there's a professional. There's a personal. It impacts many areas of your life. Yeah. yeah. Was that a long-lasting high, or was it like you know three days later you're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. I would say it lasted for 
for a while, like maybe maybe a few months. I mean, yeah, we, we definitely partied really, really hard in, in New York. Uh, I remember, uh, yeah, those couple of weeks. Um, but I think, um, yeah, then, then once, we, once we were at Twitter, we settled down, then it was like, okay, like, who am I? And like, um, what's my uh, identity? And like, I, I, I honestly, like, I found myself like, at least initially kind of being in awe of myself, like letting myself get sucked into it and feeling like I was like hot shit and like that I was deserving of this. Um, and I noticed myself, to be honest with you, like in some conversations, like bringing up the acquisition, like when I was talking to like a new person or something, like I wanted people to know about this because I was so heads down for so long. And now I wanted people to know that, okay, I- Like finally- uh, Yeah, and yeah. I'm great and I'm deserving of this. But then like an unease started to grow in me of like, like why am I talking this way or why am I in these circles of people that maybe I don't value? And, uh, and then I start to then deeply reflect on, yeah, I worked hard, but so much of it was privilege, luck, timing. And I found myself maybe starting to become a kind of person I didn't want to be. And I wanted to come back to my values that I knew that if I eventually got to this point, I wanted to actually then have impact uh, in, my, in my life path. That's what probably led you to start Fifth Star, I'm assuming. Yeah, uh, yeah, eventually, yeah. So then after a few years at Twitter, then, uh, then I moved to, to Berlin, uh, to Germany for a couple of years. Uh, that was a great reset for me. Uh, my wife, who's a dance artist, got the Fulbright grant for her work, and that took us there. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's also a very different culture. Like, to your point, I'm actually yeah. separating yeah. from the hustle, because it is very different. Yeah. You know, and Berlin, similar, whether it's Italy, France, they have a bit more of a laissez-faire attitude when it comes to work. Like, they work hard, right, yeah. but there's more of an appreciation for life, too. Totally, right? Yeah, and it's like almost August. So in August in Berlin, everyone in Europe is like on, 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 on holiday. Which <laughs> they don't I, work. Yeah, they don't work, which I miss, but... Yeah, but I think that like then especially when I left Twitter, it was um, yeah. Do I even want to stay in tech? Like like kind of who am I in a way, and what is the the path I want to build? And so uh, I knew I had a passion for education, and so I started teaching at a refugee coding school in Berlin called the Ready School. Uh, helped build that out. It was very life changing for me. Um, most of the students were from Syria, um, from uh, the refugee refugee crisis that happened then. During the war, yeah. Yeah, and so it was... It was That's it, amazing. I didn't actually know that it was Syrian refugees. Yeah, yeah. So Berlin, uh, Germany had done a lot. I think they accepted, I think, about a million, I think, refugees from Syria. Um, it was also personally impactful for me with my Muslim background, um, suddenly being around a lot of Muslim people as well. and um, Reconnecting on that side, which maybe wasn't present. Yeah, it wasn't present before, yeah. And so it was life-changing in a lot of ways. But I think it made me become more passionate about helping people build pathways into tech that otherwise wouldn't have had that opportunity um, yeah, so it was, it was, it was absolutely amazing to be in Berlin for those two years. And then, yeah, then after that moved back to, back home to Chicago in 2019. So I've been gone for about a decade. It was in New York, San Francisco and, and Berlin. Did that make you appreciate other sides of entrepreneurship that sometimes when yeah. you're so heads down, like imagine how big the world is and how much yeah. impact you can have yeah. that you think that, especially as a founder, you're raising money, you've had this big exit. Yeah. You think, I, I'm pretty sure I haven't been through it, but what I, what I, I've talked to a lot of folks who have, and it seems like. When you get to that point, the world revolves around you mm -hmm. all of a sudden, right? Yeah. 600 likes on LinkedIn, yeah. everybody's stopping you, yeah. you're doing speaking engagements, you're on podcasts. And then, you know, a couple of months later, you get to this point where even though that's the case, yeah. it's so weird how you probably feel empty. Yeah. If that's all you focused on is no, what I'm saying. It. Yeah. It's crazy to me, right? Because yeah. that probably was your dream as you were yeah. building. You're like, this is what more could happen. Yeah. No, totally. And I think what I observed, especially when I was in San Francisco, is like there's always a rat race, right? Like um, of like kind of just chasing things. And so I, I would be in these circles of meeting people, yeah, who had exits, but still felt like they had a chip on their shoulder or something more to prove. And yeah, they built another company that was maybe a mild iteration of what they did before, but because their last company succeeded, they could raise VC funding and keep growing. But for me, it was almost a question of like, what's the point of it all, right? Is it to keep increasing your net worth or, or prove to somebody? And 
Um, I don't know. It's interesting. I think a lot of entrepreneurship is that chip on your sh- uh, shoulder, right, of, of proving. But mm-hmm. it's if you get, I could do more. Yeah. Right? So I think no matter where you're at, if, you, if that's always your mentality, it's just a rat race on a different level, and, and you keep getting stuck at it. Um, yeah. So yeah, there potentially could be that emptiness that exists if, if there's not a deep, deeper sense of self inside you. Did you find that a bit more when when you were doing the the sort of coding boot camp in Berlin? Did that yeah. did that lead a little bit to, to the idea of starting Fistar back in Chicago? Yeah, I, I think like. Um, what I loved about when I was in Berlin was because no one knew me there, and I, I could obviously tell people that yeah I had an acquisition, but like it's not like I was I wasn't leading with that anymore, and like so I could just authentically be myself and have like a clean slate, and and yeah, kind of start to live again with my yeah my values or what I wanted my values to be. Um, so yeah, so I, I think like helping some of my students get technical jobs and like the value of that, and and again like with tech because it is such a wealth building opportunity for people, but so many people are shut out of it. I think that was definitely in my head, of, but I, I didn't know how it would manifest uh, when I came back to Chicago. I, I, I did not think I was going to help build a fund to support black founders uh, here in Chicago. That, w- that was on my radar. Like I was, I was open to a lot of things, but I, I, I can't say I was thinking about that. Uh, I, just knew, I just knew I wanted to have some kind of impact. Was it the city, the ecosystem that led you to figuring out this is actually a big need? Yeah. So I think it was, um, yeah, when I moved back, I was helping actually here at uh, 1871. I was helping as CTO in residence. And uh, after I moved back to Chicago, I was just trying to integrate, like, see what was out here. And, um, yeah, then it was in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd um, that became the impetus. And so so there's um, nine total co-founders of Fifth Star Funds. And so eight of my co-founders, they were part of a, a certain cohort here in 1871, the Pyros program. And in the week after the murder of George Floyd, um, a group of the, uh, my co-founders were on the call. And in, very briefly, the team touched on what was happening in the country of like, the social protests and, and things. But then very quickly, then the conversation switched back to, OK, how's everyone's companies going? And then when it came time for Stella to speak, Stella, the, she's the founder of WeSolve and, and a co-founder of mine at uh, Fifth Star, she basically gave a very impassioned reflection on what she was experiencing in the moment, how she couldn't get out of bed. Um, and she challenged the group, like, what are you guys actually doing to, um, to fix this problem that exists in, in, in our country? And again, it was very impromptu. She just, it was just her impassioned reflection. And that kind of put a fire under everyone, and it changed the conversation to be more about privilege. And then my other co-founder, Tim, who's the founder of 1440, he actually then, um, it really, that conversation really impacted him, and he had the initial idea of, okay, what if we built some kind of fund to provide friends and family capital for black founders? Um, and then through a lot of conversations, then then we built Fifth Star. But it was really that initial moment, um, that really difficult conversation that started Fifth Star. Yeah, well, what I love to do is, I, so I only came to understand the structure a bit better after obviously yeah. knowing you, having the conversations. But I think it'd be cool just to touch on, it's also structured differently than your yeah. typical VC. Totally. Right, it's under the category of like venture philanthropy. Yeah, yeah, I just right. called it, yeah, yeah. Uh, I just thought that was very unique to, yeah. to the fund itself. Yeah, and so when we started, so it's interesting because the nine of us were, were all entrepreneurs, right? So we want to be very problem focused, and well, we're also interested in just like innovative models. And so, um, so a couple things. So we, the reason we chose the model we have now is we wanted the community to come together to be part of the solution for Black founders. So we wanted anyone to be able to contribute into the fund, and. Um, so in our model, anyone can donate any amounts. You don't have to be a credit investor. It's a tax-deductible donation. We use those funds to invest in black uh, tech founders here in Chicago. But all the returns get reinvested into the fund. So basically, as any of our founders succeed, it'll just go on to support more black founders in the future. We built in this way because we wanted to build something, I don't know, in a way that was, that was beautiful, right? It doesn't always have to be about extracting profits. and Because, and, yeah, a lot of the LPs are these traditional funds, right? Like, they're people of 
of who have money, right? And so, but in our way, it's it's all it, we're talking about privilege, right? It's almost a way of get, getting rid of your privilege, right? Like putting your privilege in this vehicle, letting it grow in value, letting it contribute and have impact, and just like grow and be multi generational, and yeah. So it's that community aspect and. Um, yeah, an ability to kind of grow it in this way. You're contributing your privilege, is basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's funny actually. So, so we call our donors uh, unlimited partners or UPs, um, oh, rather than limited partners because there's no return. Yeah, and like actually Chris Deutsch from Lofty Ventures, uh, he helped yeah, coined it. Great guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. In a conversation, he, yeah. So I got to give him credit um, because the idea is, yeah, your donation can only grow in value because your five dollars can turn into fifty dollars or five thousand dollars as our startups grow in value. So, uh, yeah. So that's one of our fun fun branding terms uh, for our for our donors. Well, honestly, I, I think it's incredible uh, to see what you're doing. Uh, because specifically because there isn't a lot of VC money going into black founders. Yes, yes. Um, it's something that I think you're seeing more in Chicago. There are more funds that are yeah. sort of coming out of this ecosystem to help underrepresented founders. But I remember um, I had Boyede from Oja Express. Yeah, if you, yeah, yeah. Uh, I had him on the podcast. Yeah. And it's funny because he talked about this fam uh, friends and family round, yes, yeah. especially when raising money. And he's like, uh, I was talking about, about capital raising. Yeah. He's like, George, just a, sort of a reminder for everyone listening. Yeah. As an immigrant coming to the U.S., yeah. you know, we're coming. It, there is no friends and family money. Yeah. And if there is, yeah. it's to support ourselves yeah, yeah. being new immigrants to the U.S. Totally. It's, money back home. Uh, and helping yeah. like 90 percent of our family who's yeah. still back there and can't immig uh, immigrate. Yeah. So he's like this concept of a friend and family doesn't exist for us. Yeah. It's not even a category we've ever even entertained. I can't yeah. go to my parents and be like, hey, yeah. can you cut me a check for 100, 200,000? There is no generational wealth. Totally, yeah. um, so anyways, that was very eye-opening. I yeah. knew that obviously from a different perspective, yeah. but just as a reminder, like because we're in this space, yeah. we're around it a lot, you hear totally. it often. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's such a term of privilege now. Um, but again, yeah, when we started Fifth Star, we're thinking, okay, like let's support black entrepreneurs. Like we're tech folks, like that's the area we could play in. But, uh, and we saw other funds that were being created that were diversity focused, but many of them were later stage and they had like a broader focus. But yeah, no one is providing that initial like 25K to help start your company at the beginning. Which is so, the most critical, I mean. Exactly, yeah. So if you build that, then you can, then you can build the pipeline for later stage uh, funding. Um, so again, yeah, we were, we were looking at the problem that exists and that's why we're specifically there. Actually, it was interesting because when we met with Boy, we actually met with Boy Day, but he was a little bit later stage. He was raising a million dollar round. And, um, and so yeah, so we ended up not investing, but it was only because we wanted to have our friends and family focus. And um, it's the first sort of very, very small check just to get you from yeah. idea on a tissue paper to like a real MVP, maybe totally, yeah. something that you can go out and show for it to the market. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and we want to have that focus, and, and and no one is doing that really. Like, I mean, angels are doing it in, in different ways, but no, no fund is really structured to do, yeah, build it in that way and, and take that risk uh, at the onset. We need more folks like you, man. I'm, this is why this is why I wanted to have you on, right? It's part of it because we're friends, of course. <laughs> yeah. Part of it too is because you bring a lot of lessons. You shed light on the mental health aspect, which I love, and you're doing the initiative with Fifth Star, which is just incredible. Oh, yeah. I wanted to end on a note with uh, advice for founders, yeah. for aspiring founders, or for people in general, yeah. from all the hats that you that you wear and you continue to wear. Yeah. What's been the most critical thing that you still, if you were to tattoo something basically on your <laughs> chest, you know, what would it be? Oh man, a tattoo. Uh, actually, I almost got a tattoo in Berlin. I probably should have got a. It'd be funny <laughs> if I got a startup motto in my uh, on my arm. Um, I think uh, one that comes to mind is b being problem focused rather than uh, solution focused. Um, and so I think. Um, I think about this a lot. Like, I mean, startups like it's really important to do some one thing well. But I think at the beginning, it should be about experimentation and trying different things. It's more of an art than a science because you can't just experiment on everything. You have limited resources. But um, I think a lot of founders that 
where it doesn't work out, they're too tied to an idea or they're not letting the feedback or market uh, dictate uh, what they're doing. So be problem focused. The solution could be very agnostic and you'll figure that out later. Um, I, I think also I would say maybe yeah, come back to the mental health aspect, right? Like, uh, yeah, take care of yourself. Figure out what's that one thing you need to do every day to take care of yourself, whether it's a walk or, or, or whatever it may be. Um, I think for me, I feel very lucky because actually when, so when I graduated at NYU, it was, it was like literally it was like two years full time before we were acquired. So it was like very fast actually exit. I don't know if I could have gone another year of, um, yeah, at the pace we were operating in. So I feel very lucky that it happened. And so looking back, most most journeys are not like that. It's going to be multiple years long. Um, and so, yeah, you have to take care of yourself if you're going to last that, that journey. Um, yeah, maybe last, I would say the founding team is so important. And so uh, it's hard to be a solo founder. Um, but if you have a good co-founding team that are ready to take a jump with you, like, yeah, take that jump uh, if you're able to, because I think that's so key at, at the beginning, uh, having that strong team. And, and a lot of things have to work out in the universe for uh, a good group of people to align. So if you have that, like, take, take the jump and, and start the company. Yes. Samir, bringing the heat to, to, to end this momentous podcast. <laughs> I don't know. They just occur to me. You know? <laughs> no, it's uh, listen. Uh, I appreciate you. Obviously, as a friend, as a person, thank you for doing this. Hopefully, it was a good first. Oh, it was awesome. What a great yeah. way to yeah start the weekend. Appreciate you, man. Yeah, thank no, you again thank for you doing this. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, for folks in Chicago, outside, connect on your own accord. But yeah. Uh, honestly, an all-around great guy. Oh, no. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn. But <laughs> yeah. Also, yeah, uh, if you're interested in Fifth Star Funds, uh, anyone I can. sell e-books and courses. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you're, I, was, I, gotta, I gotta say, but if you're interested in our work at Fifth Star, yeah, visit our website, fifthstarfunds.com. Anyone can donate and contribute, help in many ways. So, yeah. Thank you for the platform. Thanks for letting me be here. Make sure to do so. <laughs> That's cool. it. Thanks, man.